The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter... As you turn to Matthew 13 need to provide some explanation for why you're turning to Matthew 13 as opposed to Hebrews chapter 3. If you were here last week, you heard me say we were going to go back to Hebrews and begin back in chapter 3 last week. <clears throat> and uh, had a little game changer this week that uh, sort of shifted focus. And let me provide some explanation and a pathway forward for us. Um, most of you know that I've been working on my... On my uh, doctor of ministry now for a couple of years. I took a, about a, a year break over the last year and have now re-engaged this semester. And uh, a part of the, uh, the hang-up for me has been exactly what am I going to do for my, well, my project? What is my preaching project going to be on what text? And uh, just this week sort of had a, a bit of an epiphany, if you will, as to uh, what that direction needs to be. And uh, what I've chosen to do is, is uh, work out of Hebrews. There are five warning passages in Hebrews, one of which is right at the beginning of chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to sort of use those five warning passages as the basis for my, my doctoral project, which means uh, essentially I'm going to eat, sleep, drink, breathe those texts for the rest of this year. Between now and the fall, September precisely, uh, at which point I'll, I'll preach a 10 to 12 week series on those five warning passages. Between now and then, uh, I'll be studying and writing and researching and doing all of that built around those. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Those texts are really significant texts and they, they build a, a sort of a central backbone to the book of Hebrews and I think they're really significant texts for us as a church. What are the things that, uh, sort of has been a concern of mine as I thought through what I needed to do for that project is it needed to be something that would have, uh, at least from my perspective, some benefit to you rather than something that just piqued my interest um, because you're going to have to listen to it for a good 10 weeks. So it needs to be something that I think would be for your spiritual good. And as I really have, have read continuously read through Hebrews and come across those passages multiple times, there are several things that weave through those texts that I think are really significant issues that I think will be a blessing to you for us to explore together. Things like, um, what does it look like to endure to the end in our faith? What are we to make of those who don't endure to the end? We'll touch on that and sort of pique your interest this morning in this parable in Matthew chapter 13. What is apostasy? What, is it, what does it look like to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith? What does it look like to have assurance of our faith? Can we know that we are believers at any given point in time? And how can we know? And what does that look like? And how can we get to a place where we have confidence in where we stand with the Lord? So all of those are the kinds of issues that weave through those warning passages. And uh, I think it will be good for us all to spend some some dedicated time in the fall. So my game plan moving forward then is this. Uh, For this week and the next two weeks following, we're going to do a little mini-series on parables. Uh, I'll then be away for two weeks on my annual military duty, and uh, 
Uh, our new staff member, Britt Stokes, will be uh, preaching on the 17th and the 24th, so I know you'll be excited to have him on board and to have him right out of the chute, uh, taking two Sundays. And then when I get back, uh, we'll go back to Hebrews, and what I plan to do between then and the fall is to sort of preach around those warning texts, if that makes sense. We'll kind of uh, move around those texts throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews and then come back to them as a group in the fall uh, when my research is complete and my writing is done and it's time to to address that, uh, that preaching series. Does that all make sense to you? All right. Are you okay with that, with that plan? I mean, I know, I, I'm not going to change it. I just want to know if you're okay with it or not. It's taken me a long time to figure it out. Come on. So that brings us to this morning in Matthew chapter 13. I, I want to uh, address in Matthew chapter 13 really what is one of the most... Uh, uh, prominent parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the sower. And let me tell you why I've gone to these parables that I'm going to choose for the next three weeks. We've been studying sort of this, uh, this issue of going, this, this foundational pillar of who we are as a church, being a church that is committed to growing in order to go, and this idea that we are called to take the gospel out into our community and beyond. Um, how we're not to be the kinds of folks who just grow for the sake of growth, but we're to grow and mature in our faith in order that that growth might propel us outward from within the walls, out into this city, out into our state and region, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And we've looked at some length since the first of the year at that and challenged ourselves with that and also sort of equipped ourselves with how to do that. What I wanted to do is choose parables that sort of move off of that theme and answer the question, what should we expect when we go and do that? What kind of reactions, what sort of responses should we expect, can we expect, when we go and are obedient to the Lord's calling to go? And that led me really to, to the parable of the sower. Uh, because really, it's, as we sort of parachute into chapter 13 of Matthew, we're, we're walking with Jesus and his disciples, and they've been following him, and they've been listening to him teach, and they've been watching as, as crowds have sort of gathered and then sort of waned. The crowds have come, and significant numbers within the crowds have listened to Jesus and have gone. And even in the midst of that, there have been those who have followed Jesus for quite some time, and over time begin to just drift away. And no doubt, at this point in the ministry of of the Lord and the apostles, uh, the disciples have questions. They're wondering, what are we to make of this? If Jesus truly is the Messiah, if he really is the Son of God come in order to save us, if he is the the promised one, the way, the truth, and the life, and if he's all these things that we believe that he is, why is it that everybody isn't embracing him as that? Why is it that there are some who reject? Why is it that there are some who seem to embrace him only to flutter away over time? And so Jesus comes to that issue in this parable, the parable of the sower, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Jesus says this, or Matthew writes this, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, Saying, now pause for just a moment there. The crowds have gathered on this occasion, and it's a pretty significant 
crowd. They, they've they've uh, encroached so much. If you can imagine Jesus, Jesus sort of on the beach backing up toward the water, but the crowd is pressed in so so tightly, and there's so many people, uh, and his back is to the water. He can't project well to get his word out to the whole crowd, so he literally has to get into a boat and go out on the water a bit so that he can speak and the whole crowd hear him. That's what's happening here. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, he sowed some seeds that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Skip down to verse 18, where Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown in the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You may recognize the name Bill Bradley if you've lived very long. Some of you who are in generations younger than mine may not know who Bill Bradley was. He was a U.S. senator, now retired, but prior to that he was an outstanding basketball player uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the NBA, the New York Knicks to be in fact. Bill Bradley, uh, as a, a younger man, was an active believer. He was a person who came to Christ in early in his life and was a student at Princeton University and there he became very active in the fellowship of Christian athletes and by the time he was playing for the New York Knicks he was a, a very outspoken Christian. He had written uh, actually years before that a tract, a Christian tract and in that tract he said this, I've made my choice, I, I love Jesus Christ and I try to serve him to the best of my ability. How about you? But something changed somewhere along the way for Bill Bradley. Sometime after he was the outspoken believer playing for the New York Knicks, because by the time we get to the late 90s and he writes his memoirs, he explains to all who read this, he says he was put off by the exclusive claims of conservative Christianity. And he became bothered by the uncharitable and racist attitudes displayed by some Christians. And so now, he says, he embraces all religions, from Buddhism to Islam, so long as they seek inner peace. 
What do we make of Bill Bradley's story? At one point in his life, for a significant period of his life, appeared to be a faithful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, going to such extent as writing about it and challenging others to faith in Christ. An outspoken, prominent member of society, prominent basketball player. And yet he ends up here, rejecting Jesus altogether and embracing some form of silly universalism that distills down to something as simple as whatever gives you inner peace is good. Sadly, his story isn't unique. The landscape of the history of the church is is literally littered with thousands upon thousands of Bill Bradleys. Not all are as popular or as well-known as he was. But I suspect probably even in your circle of influence in your life, you've encountered people with a similar trajectory. At one point, they appeared to be people who were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe they went to church with you. Maybe they were in your your small group Bible study. Maybe you were even a part of some ministry or mission with them. Only to find later in life, they walk away from the faith altogether. And there's no shred of evidence at all that they even remotely have any love or respect for the Lord. What do we make of such people? How do we explain that? How are we to understand why and how that happens? Well, it's been a problem all throughout the history of the church. It was a problem in Jesus' day and the crowds that followed him. Some came and stayed for a while and left, and the apostles needed to understand why. It's a problem in our day. I mean, there's no better example of this in Jesus' day in the first century than a man by the name of Judas Iscariot, right? If there's ever a poster child for this kind of a, of a thing, it's Judas, because he was in the inner circle of Christ. He was one of the twelve apostles. He appeared on the surface by, by all sort of, uh, sort of external evaluation to be a real, genuine believer. Nobody suspected him of anything. He looked just like the rest of the other apostles who followed Jesus. There was nothing that was indistinguishable about him. He heard all of the things that Jesus said. He watched all of the miracles, participated in many of them himself. Nobody would have suspected anything about Judas until the end. Yet it turns out he was a fake. He was a fraud. And his true colors ultimately came out. It is to this issue that Jesus says this parable. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, I want to sort of just, because we haven't been studying parables, give you a quick definition and explain uh, what the purpose of these are. Parables are, let me just give you a definition so that you'll understand what they are, simply a short story that uses a familiar scene, a familiar everyday sort of a scene, and everyday objects and everyday relationships to explain a spiritual truth. Okay? That's it. It's a really simple concept. It's just a story. It it is, in, in some sense, a fictional story that's made up, but it uses familiar scenes, and it uses everyday objects and everyday relationships, and its purpose is to explain a spiritual truth. It's not like a fable. If you've read Aesop's fables when you were growing up, fables are made-up stories too, but in those, they're not real people and real relationships. They're talking animals and such, right? 
Um, it's not the same thing as a parable. A parable is a, is a, it's a fictional story, but it's, it's everyday real objects, things that really could happen. And their intention is to, to convey a spiritual truth. The parables, when we're reading them and studying them and interpreting them, we need to understand there is largely one spiritual truth and occasionally a secondary spiritual truth that the parable intends to convey. We go astray on parables when we start trying to make every little detail of a parable have some significant meaning. That isn't the way that they were designing. It wasn't how Jesus used them. But parables were used by Jesus for a very specific purpose. And he tells us in the middle of the two texts that we read this morning why he uses parables. Because this is a shift. Up to this point in his ministry, he has not been speaking in parables. Uh, From this point forward, when he speaks to the crowds, he does speak in parables. So it's an intentional shift on his part as, as to how he communicates. And so the disciples notice this, and in chapter 13, verse 10, they ask him the question, Why do you speak to them in parables, Jesus? Why have you changed the way you're communicating to the crowds? And he answers them this, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he quotes Isaiah, a prophecy that says this, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? What in the world is he saying? He's saying this. He's saying The crowds that have followed me are largely people who have not embraced what I've taught. They are are made up of, uh, as we trek through the Gospels, we find that the opponents of Christ follow him around. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders are constantly challenging him, trying to trip him up, trying to to discredit him in, in front of the crowds because they're jealous, insanely jealous of the following that he's gathered. And so they're out there, and mixed in are all sorts of people with all sorts of motives. Some people who literally just want healing. They're not interested in the message of salvation. They're not interested in the condition of their souls. All they want is their physical needs met. And Jesus has been teaching over and over again. And as he's been teaching, the hostility has been rising, and the rejection of the crowds has been rising. And Jesus is feeling the heat of all of this. And he understands the heart of these men. And so he shifts his way of teaching. To parables. And the parables serve two purposes. For those who have not been willing to receive the clear teaching he's already given, the parables will make absolutely no sense. But to those with open hearts who have already received what they've heard, the parables will be open to them and they'll get it. It's actually a miraculous way of communicating in such a way that the opponents won't make any sense of what he's saying, but the disciples will deepen in their walk and their faith because of what they hear. They'll get it. It was really a judgment toward unbelief. 
It was Jesus' way of saying, you have rejected what I have clearly taught you, so now I'm going to teach in a way that you can't understand. Since you rejected what was clear, you're not even going to make sense of the rest of it. You're shut out. It was a judgment on their unbelief. It was the same thing that was going on in Isaiah's day. Isaiah was sent to Judah to proclaim God's truth. And God told him in advance, these people have hardened hearts. They've closed their eyes. They've stuck their fingers in their ears. And they're not going to listen to what you have to say on my behalf. But you go and you tell them anyway. Because you're telling them is in fact a very living judgment in their midst. And there are some people in the mix who will listen and who will hear and who will believe. And those people matter. And so Jesus starts talking in parables for that purpose. A judgment against those who've already rejected him, shutting them out from understanding anything further, and enlightenment to those who've already embraced him with open hearts, who want to know him, who want to understand. Their eyes are opened, and the parables make sense. And so he gives the first one here. By the way, let me just say this. It's a dangerous thing to hear and comprehend God's truth and then willfully reject it. I think that's a, just one takeaway from Jesus' explanation of why he spoke in parables. It's a dangerous thing to hear and understand what Jesus has to say for you and to willfully reject that. Because for these people, that's exactly what they had done. They had understood everything that he had said. They had just willfully rejected it. And, and it came to this point where Jesus says, fine, you've willfully rejected the truth long enough. Now I'm shutting you out from it altogether. That you this morning and you understood what Christ has called you to. You understand the gospel and you've been pushing it away and pushing it away. You need to hear this as a clear warning in your life that there may come a point when the gospel is no longer sensible to you. And the opportunity is gone. So Jesus moves to this, this wonderful parable. And the parables were, were, were they're stories that everybody would have made sense of when they tell the story. I mean... This is an agrarian society. There are people that are, that are casting seeds, sowers casting seeds and planting crops. That was just the day in and day out of everyday life of anybody in this society. So when Jesus starts telling this story, and he talks about a sower casting seed, and he talks about seed landing on different kinds of ground, and he talks about crops coming up, and he talks about birds taking seeds, all of this would have just been such common story that people would have understood the story. The story would have made sense. The spiritual application may not have been so clear to them on the surface. So in this story, we have some symbols that we need to define because Jesus defines them here for us in his explanation right at the outset. He talks about a sower and some seed. The sower in the story represents Jesus, who is speaking the gospel. And we could say it also represents us, those who follow Christ and take the gospel and cast the seed of the gospel out into the world around us. And in the the, the seed represents the gospel. It represents the gospel, the teaching that Jesus is giving. So the, the sower is Jesus. The seed is the gospel. The only variable in the story is what? It's the soil. The soil. The sower remains the same. The seed remains the same. The only variable, the only thing that's variable in the whole mix is the kind of soil upon which 
the seed lands. And the soil represents the hearts of men. The hearts of men. The different kinds of soils represent the different kinds of hearts that hear the gospel. And by this very simple analogy, Jesus is going to explain to his disciples, this is why when I teach, certain people receive and certain people reject. And others hang around for a while and then they disappear. He's going to explain there's something different about the hearts of men. So let's walk through it. He gives us the first soil or the first heart, if you will, at the beginning of this. He said, a sower went out to sow and he sowed some seeds. And some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Now that's a simple analogy. The path he's talking about is the roadway where people walk. And so the sower, you can imagine a sower with a sack of seeds. He's casting his seed out. Some of it is going to inevitably fall where he's walking on the the road and and if you've ever planted anything in your yard you understand even someone is as as awful at gardening as myself who can kill anything that would even grow on its own that's me i understand that part that if you drop seed on packed soil where it can't get underneath the surface it's not going to embed itself and it's not going to grow what's going to happen is birds are going to fly by and say, ooh, dinner. And they're going to fly down, they're going to eat that seed that you just bought and threw on the road, right? Or the squirrels will come and take it in our context. That's what happens in my yard. Everybody understood this. Some of the seed falls on the road. It can't get into the ground because the road is hard and it's packed and it can't embed itself and so it sits on the surface and the only thing that happens is the bird come and take it away and eat it. That's it. What heart is this? This is the unresponsive heart. It's the hardened heart. It's the person that hears the gospel, but the gospel never sinks in below the surface. Because their heart is like that, that road. It's, it's hard to the truth. And there's no room for the gospel to embed itself into the heart and into the life. It's the man, it's the woman who hears the gospel and just sees it as foolish, nonsense. Who rejects it outright as Not applicable to them. It's the one Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you, when you go out and cast the seed of the gospel, you need to expect within the crowds, within the people to whom you're talking to, you're going to, you're going to, find people who have hard hearts. You're going to find people who are going to hear what you have to say and they're going to outright reject it. And they're going to say, no, thank you. I don't want to hear that. That isn't true and I don't believe it. They're self-sufficient. They're self-absorbed. They don't see any need for Christ. They don't see any need to salvation. They're completely blind to their sin. They have no concern for their eternal destiny. They think everything is fine. They think everything is good. They don't need Christ. They don't need a church. They don't need religion. They don't need Jesus. All they need is themselves. All they need is some sense of inner peace. So Jesus says, the soil, it falls on the ground and the birds come and snatch it away. 
He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, we need to define that word understand, because when we hear the word understand in English, we think of a word that means comprehend. Jesus doesn't mean comprehend here. He means embrace via belief. It's a much more comprehensive word in the Greek that has more to do than just mental understanding, but it has a, a heart comprehension and a heart embracing of it underneath the surface. So Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, does not embrace it with their heart, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. The gospel lands, and it sits on the surface, and the evil one comes along and diverts attention to something else, and there's no thought of the gospel again after that. It's the sad reality in which we live. That there are men and women who will reject the gospel of Jesus. Who think they have no need for any of it. And who will walk away from it. Sometimes in apathy, sometimes in anger. And hostility. It's the person the psalmist describes in Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, what? There's no God. That's this heart. Stubbornness love for the world, pride, love of sin, procrastination, whatever, has hardened them to the gospel and they reject. It's the first soil. But Jesus tells us there's another kind. Some fell on rocky places, he says in verse 5, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. So a different kind of soil. This is not the roadside soil. This is soil that on the surface, it looks like a good place for some seed to land. And when he talks about rocky soil, he's not talking about soil that has big rocks on the surface. He's talking about a layer of soil underneath which is a big layer of limestone. In their culture, in that part of the world, this was a a, a very real reality in which they lived when they were farming. That there were places that looked like good soil on the surface, but just underneath the surface is a very sturdy, stiff layer of, of limestone. And so seeds would initially plant in that soil and begin to grow up a little bit, but the roots would hit that limestone and they could never go deep enough to to deepen into the ground and gain nutrients that would sustain it over the long term. They couldn't root down into those sources of water that would keep it alive when the, 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 the summer heat comes out and scorches the plant on the surface. And so they would grow up for a little while, but then the heat would come and there would be not enough sufficient water to sustain life and the plant is scorched and dies. That's this rocky soil. And Jesus explains the analogy spiritually. The one who received the seed that fell on the, on the rocky soil is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. It's the second kind of heart that Jesus says to his disciples, this is what you're seeing, and this is what you will see. And this is what he's saying to you, you will run into this person too when you go out and you share the gospel and you're faithful to go. It's the person who you you share the gospel and immediately there's an enthusiastic and, and positive response. They say to you, yes, that's that's exactly what I need. I need to be saved. I need to believe in the Lord Jesus. And they receive him with joy. 
It's enthusiastic. It's quick. There's excitement. There's an emotional response. He says here that they receive it with joy. And for a season, this person, they, 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 you can't contain their enthusiasm for Christ and for the gospel and for the church. He can't say enough good about the church and about the kingdom and about the gospel and about the preacher and about the Lord and about his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's on an emotional high. He can't wait to tell other people about the Lord Jesus and even begins to share the gospel himself. And for a season, she looks like a, a model of true conversion, of genuine faith. Go to church, worship in the community like you've done this morning, involve themselves in Bible studies. But the problem is it's all temporary. Jesus says there's this initial joy, but it has no root. And so it doesn't last. And the reason it doesn't last is twofold. Trouble comes into the life or persecution because of the word comes into the life. And as soon as that happens, faith is out the window. It's all temporary. As soon as trouble comes, as soon as persecution comes, this person walks out the door of the church and walks away from the faith altogether. And, it's, and it happens because there never actually was any true repentance at the beginning. There was never a real brokenness over sin. There was never a real dying to self. There was never a, a true hunger and thirst for righteousness. There was never a real comprehension and a commitment to die to self and live for Christ. There was no comprehension of what Jesus said when he said, if you want to follow after me, you must take up your cross and follow after me. That was never a part of the equation. It was just an emotional response to the felt needs that they had at the time. And so they, they move on with life and they lose their job. They hit financial trouble in their lives. Misunderstandings with other believers and conflicts within the body. Some sickness comes into their life that they didn't ask for and haven't anticipated and didn't want. Their relationships go sour. And all of a sudden their faith is gone. And they walk away. And just as suddenly as they receive the message, they leave it. It's important for us to understand that this is a superficial believer. They may have been baptized. They may have served in the church for a season and apparently function as a model member of the body of Christ. But when the, when the trouble comes and when the persecution comes, they leave. I read a testimony from someone called Evan Simone, a student at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And here's what he writes. He says, I wasn't raised a Christian, but came to accept Christ of my own volition in my young high school years. I guess there's a good and bad way to look at this. I wasn't indoctrinated as a child, but instead had the strength to adopt my own worldview. On the other hand, thinking back, I shamefully shudder in embarrassment at the memory of how I was converted. Suffice it to say, I was at winter church camp sophomore year. And I lost myself in a torrent of passionate emotion during a worship concert among all my friends. We all cried with sorrow-stricken hearts as the powerful images from the Passion of the Christ flashing in the background of the screens 
With tears streaming, we loved Him for His sacrifice and prayed to be saved. Again, I shudder. But I wasn't just His humble servant. I regrettably also preached His Word literally, loudly, and obnoxiously. So what changed? How did I go from a pompous, evangelical know-it-all, espousing biblical certainties along with the moral bankruptcy of evolutionary scientists? What was the most important moment of my life, he says? I appreciated the liberating power of the simplest question. Why? Freshman year at UC Santa Barbara, its force overwhelmed me in geology too. No longer was I convinced by the Bible's shallow account of the earth's age. From this point, my mind was for the first time truly open. I questioned everything and it felt amazing. The rest, as they say, is history. It's a sad testimony to read and to hear. But it's a beautiful example of the soil to which Jesus speaks. Initially enthusiasm and response. But go to college and have a challenge from a professor and a little trouble. And all of a sudden it's gone. It's gone. Jesus gives us another soil. Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. That's an easy one. It falls on the ground and it takes root and the plants begin to grow up. The problem is all around it are thorns and the thorns grow bigger and faster and they, they block the sunlight and they choke out the life from the plant. Jesus says, this is the one who received the seed that fell along among the thorns. It's the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful. So if the roadside soil, the soil on the road is the, is the unresponsive hard heart and the, the rocky soil is the shallow, superficial heart, this here is the worldly heart. It's the person who lives for the things of the world. That's what Jesus says, right? The worries of this life. All of the things that are a part of this life that cause us anxiety and worry. All the things that that we chase after and think we have to have. And the pursuit of which causes all sorts of, of fears and anxieties in our life. We're concerned about our careers. We're concerned about our houses. We're concerned about our cars and our hobbies and our wardrobes and our prestige and how we look and our riches. And all of these things grow in, in, in significant levels of importance in our life. And all of those things become the preeminent things in our life that really ultimately matter to us and they choke out any life that seemed to be there at the beginning for the gospel. Again, like the superficial shallow soil, at the beginning they hear the gospel and they receive it. And it seems like the real deal. It seems like they fully embrace the Lord Jesus and and they follow for a season. And again, they they come to church and they identify with God's people. And they may even show signs of growth at first. If you ask them, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think they'll say? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The problem is they're preoccupied with the world. 
And that's what really drives them. The gospel and Christianity has just been added on. It's like an add-on to the side, but never the main thing. And eventually, the concerns of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, he says, chokes out whatever life seemed to be there at the beginning. In 1 John chapter 2, John writes, Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So this person is the one who's constantly and continually preoccupied with their money, with their wealth, with their possessions, with their careers, with their sports, with their hobbies, with everything other than the work of the Lord. And that's what drives them. And that's the thorn-infested heart. And it should never be a surprise to us when that person eventually walks away. And then verse 8, Jesus tells us there's a fourth, a fourth soil. He said, Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Well, who's this? For what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Again, same understanding, embraces it volitionally. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So here's the good soil, Jesus says. Hey, when you cast it out there, there are going to be those that, that land on the road who reject. There are going to be those superficial, shallow people who initially look like they respond, but then they walk away. There are going to be those who look initially like they've received everything, but their, their, their worldly concerns and their love for the world is going to entice them, and they're going to walk away eventually. But you need to understand that in the mix of all of that, there's always good soil. There are some people who hear the gospel, it plants into their life, it takes deep root into their soul, and it grows up and begins to bear fruit over time. What's the difference between the good soil and the other three? That's the point Jesus is trying to make. It's really two things. Endurance and fruit bearing. That's it. Endurance and fruit bearing. How do you know the good soil from the other three? The good soil bears fruit at varying degrees. Jesus says, hey, sometimes it's a hundredfold, a sixtyfold, thirtyfold. The issue isn't how much fruit. It isn't quantity of fruit. It isn't that we need to go around measuring people's fruit to determine. The issue is that they bear fruit. That's the point. That the gospel roots into their life, and over the long haul of their life, as you watch them live out the faith, you begin to see evidence in their behavior, evidence in their attitude, evidence in the way they live, evidence in the way they talk, evidence in the way they navigate the world, that they belong to Christ. It becomes obvious over time. They bear fruit. Galatians chapter 5 Verse 22, the acts of the sinful nature are this, and they're obvious, Paul writes, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, 
idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Got that list? That's the acts of the sinful nature. It's a pretty comprehensive list for which we could all give examples. But Jesus said this, excuse me, Paul writes this, but the fruit of the Spirit is not those things. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see that? What happens when the gospel lands on good soil is over time, all of those things in that first list start being transformed into things in the second list. Where there used to be uh, things like anger and fits of rage and selfish ambition and dissensions and factions and envy, all of a sudden, there's joy and there's peace and there's patience and there's kindness. Where there used to be all of this sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery, there's now self-control that's a fruit of the life. The difference is that there's fruit. Over time, you see evidence that the gospel has transformed the life of the man or the woman. And trouble comes, and they stay with Christ. And the trouble goes. And the cares and concerns of the world, which they face like everybody else in the world faces, they come into their life, but they don't overwhelm the life. They deal with those things, and they run to Christ in the midst of all of that. They don't run away. And the fruit of the Spirit becomes begins to become the aroma of their life. Over time, there's fruit that's born. And they endure. They endure. That's what Jesus says. They endure. They don't walk away. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, we read this. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, John writes, so that it would be shown that they are not of us. It's the same point Jesus is making in the parable. That people whose hearts are represented by the good soil receive the gospel, they stay with Christ. They stay with Christ. That doesn't mean that there's not moments and, and, and instances in their life when they fail. Of course, that's the reality of every one of our lives. It doesn't even mean that there aren't seasons in their life where they fall back in their walk with the Lord or maybe uh, sort of uh, fall back into some sinful behavior or activity. The point is that over the, the long haul of their life, they don't walk away from Christ. They don't walk away from the gospel. They stick with the Lord. Those who walk away show signs, John says, that they weren't of us to begin with. It's those who endure. If you were alive in 1968 and you watched the Olympics that year, you might have watched something really incredible that happened. There was a 26-mile marathon that was run in that Olympics. And those who started the race crossed the finish line. And as if you've ever watched a marathon, you might know that over a period of time, people sort of cross the finish line. As you can imagine, the pack separates a bit over 26 miles. 
But what was interesting about this particular marathon is that everyone had crossed the line for the most part. And over an hour and a half after the winner had crossed the line, people had largely left the Colosseum. The lights were being turned off on the track. And then suddenly there was the sound of sirens. There was one last runner who entered the stadium an hour and a half behind the front runner. He was the runner from Tanzania. He had had a rough time because early in the race he had had fallen and dislocated his knee and bloodied it up pretty badly. He also injured his shoulder pretty severely in the fall. So there was a reason he was coming into the Colosseum an hour and a half after the front runner. But the few spectators that remained when he came into the stadium, you can imagine, began to cheer, right, for the guy. And after finishing the race and crossing the line, he, he walked off the field uh, really without even turning to the spectators. And there was a reporter who happened to ask him the question. He asked him the question, In view of the fact that you had no chance to win the race, why did you keep going? You were injured. You had a hundred reasons to quit. To which he simply replied this, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. What a beautiful statement. Beautiful statement about one who understood the value of enduring to the end and finishing what he set out to do. It's a picture of the good soil. The person who is the good soil, it's not that his life and her life doesn't have trouble. It's not that there aren't moments where you fall and dislocate your knee and bust up your shoulder. It's just that those things don't take you out of the race and cause you to abandon your faith. So the good soil endures and it bears fruit. This is Jesus' explanation for why the crowds are responding the way they're responding. This is his encouragement to his disciples because he's getting ready to send them out to go and share the gospel. And he knows what they're going to face, the same thing that he faced. And it's his encouragement to you and I when he calls us to also go to realize that when we scatter the seed of the gospel, each of these hearts are going to be manifest in the people we encounter. And we would be wise sowers to train ourselves into understanding these differences. That we might not celebrate too early and that we might look for evidence of saving faith. That we might not be discouraged when people reject, but that we might be encouraged that there is always good soil out there when we cast our seed. Always. And then secondarily, and maybe more pointedly for us this morning, I think Jesus would intend for us all to evaluate our own lives and our own hearts. And to look hard in the mirror and ask the question, Hey, which one of those soils represents my heart? If I'm being honest before the Lord, which one of those soils is me? What does my life give evidence of? Not what do people around me in this building and in this room think. But what's the nature of my heart? What's the condition of the soil? 
You see, apart from the first one, the second two soils, really actually the, the, the last three, for a season they all look the same. They all go to church. They all do what you're doing here today. They all live for Christ for a while. They all have some level of enthusiasm. In fact, just looking out in the crowd like I am right now, there's no way in the world to ever know the difference. I think the only person that knows the condition of their heart beside the Lord is the man, the woman. And so maybe that's the way to end this this morning is for you and for me to look hard in the mirror of this message and ask the question, is there evidence that my heart is the good soil? Or is it possible that I'm that rocky soil kind of a person, that my faith is shallow and superficial, the first sign of trouble, the first sign of persecution, I'm out the door? What about the worldly heart? cares and concerns of the world around us, the things that are choking out the life of the gospel in your life. If that's the case, you never know when you may wake up one day and it's choked out altogether and you have no concern for the things of God at all. Only you know if you're in danger. And if you are, and you're aware of that, we praise God for that. Because there's still time and there's still hope. Even right now you can repent and turn from that love for the world and embrace the Lord and say, Lord, make my roots go deep. Season my heart that it might be the good soil. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we hear your words this morning. They're hard words. They are hard words. It's a simple story, but the explanation is painful. We live in a wealthy society. By the world's standards, we are wealthy people. For us, at least initially, when the gospel comes into our life, there's no real cost to embracing you. And so many in our culture just embrace you at a superficial level for various reasons. But they never come to that place where they understand I need Jesus because I'm a rotten sinner who's going to hell. And apart from Him, I have absolutely no hope. They never come to the conclusion in their hearts that the only way to receive you is to die to themselves and to live for you. They never come to you on your terms like that. Perhaps there are some in this room for whom that's the reality. I pray that you'd open their eyes that they might see it before what little seed of the gospel is there is choked out and is burned away. Draw them to yourself in repentance and faith. Transform their hearts, I pray. It's a good soil. And Lord, embolden us as we consider taking the gospel out into the world around us. Give us confidence and hope, endurance, because we know the good soil is there. We pray for these things for your sake alone, Christ Jesus. Amen.